Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy as we approach your word that you'd calm our hearts and help us to look to see you in the written pages of the word. We know that you're the living word, the, the word that was in the beginning with God, the word which is God, the word is the creator of all things, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's you. But this is the written word, and it's your word, and we ask that you'd calm our hearts and Help us to understand your written word to, in such a way as to draw closer to the living word. As we study, we'd ask you to open our minds and teach our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, last week we had <clears throat> talked about the, uh, the problems they're having in Corinth. And, and actually, as we go through the book of First and Second Corinthians, books of First and Second Corinthians, we're going to see that a lot because virtually every bit of the letters to the Corinthian church are corrective teaching. They, they had problems. They had problems. There, there a lot of stuff going on there. And the first one we saw was them splitting up over whose teacher was their favorite teacher. Oh, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos. <laughs> well, I'm of Jesus. I got you all beat. You know, this, this kind of baloney that was tearing them up. He says, stop it. In chapter 3, he said, that's carnal. That's from the flesh. That's not from the spirit. Says, says, none of us are anything. Jesus is everything. Says, all we do, one of us planted seed, another one watered. Somebody else is, is picking up the pieces after we're done. He says, God's the one that gives the increase. Don't get holding up one person over another. <clears throat> and last week we saw that they were, they were still doing that in other ways. They wanted to see themselves as being wise and powerful and honorable and and we saw that, that that's the opposite of what God said that he'd called. He says, you see your calling, brethren, how that not many of you are noble, not many are wise according to the world, not many are mighty, but God has chosen the weak things for, to confound the things which are mighty. He's cho chosen the, the foolish things to confound the things which are, that the world considers wise, <clears throat> and he's chosen base things and things which are despised to confound the things which are thought to be high and mighty. Now, if that's who God says he called, then why do we spend our lives pretending to be something else? Why are we trying to impress the world that we're not uh, base or foolish or, or weak? We want them to all think that we're wise and powerful and honorable. And he says, knock it off. <clears throat> now, we have a hard time with that because all of us in our flesh want to appear to be wise and strong and honorable. You know, we want to be fine, upstanding citizens, etc. And God says, well, that's not who I called, though. I called the losers. I called sinners to repentance. That's what Jesus calls. And if we don't want to admit we're sinners, then we don't belong to him. That's all. And people have a hard time with that. <clears throat> but here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, at the end of what we talked about last week when he says, I beg you, be follow followers of me. He says, follow our example, the, <coughs> the example of the apostles. We saw that their example included the fact that they were self-supporting. They weren't getting a handout from anybody. They were, uh, they didn't have enough food for their travels. They didn't have money. They were, <coughs> they were physically beaten by the authorities. Uh, they didn't have a place to live as they're homeless. And he says, you'd be better off to be following that example than what you're doing, trying to make yourselves, put yourselves on a pedestal. 
So we saw that last week. In verse uh, 17 here, he says, For this cause, this is what we're starting on today, he says, For this cause I sent to you Timotheus, Timothy, <clears throat> who is my beloved son, not his physical son, it was his son in the faith. He had led him to the Lord, and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, uh, which be in Christ, and what I teach everywhere in every church. He says, I, I wanted you to follow our example, and you're not doing it, so I'm sending you Timothy to remind you what that example is. <clears throat> he says, now some are puffed up as though I would not, as though I would not come to you. He says, they're not expecting me, expecting me to come back, but I'm going to come back. He says, verse 19, he says, I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and you will know not the speech of them. Oh, no, I will know. He says, I will know not the speech of them who are puffed up, these proud people that are saying, oh, we can do things our way, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. He's, verse 21, he asks the rhetorical question. He says, what would you, what would you prefer? He says, what will ye? Shall I come to you with a rod, in other words, in punishment, or in love and in the spirit of meekness? <clears throat> now, we're going to stop there. I want to first examine who Timothy was and why he was sent to the various places he was sent. It wasn't just to this church. He was sent to a lot of them. <clears throat> several times in our studies that we've seen Timothy mentioned as a companion in Paul's travels or as his fellow laborer. We saw in uh, Acts chapter 17, in fact, Elizabeth brought it up this morning in Acts chapter 17 where uh, Paul and Silas, I think, and Timothy went to Berea. <clears throat> Uh, after they left Thessalonica and it said the people of Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they heard the word they received the word daily from the apostles and then they checked out the scriptures it says they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so they didn't just take it and they didn't reject it they said well hmm, that's new let's go look that up and they did they went to God's Word. They only had the Old Testament, but they went there to find out, is that really what that says? And they found out in every case, yeah, it was. And so the people in Berea <coughs> had a good response to the teaching. That's what we ask for people to do, too. I don't want you to believe anything because I say so. If you believe it because Chet Bishop says so, you're in trouble. You, you find it in your Bible. You read what God says. You believe because he says so. I can fail you. God can't. But Timothy was sent as an emissary. He was sent by Paul, but, but God was the one backing him. And what we're going to find today is that each of us is an emissary of God. <coughs> I looked up the word emissary in a dictionary. It says that an emissary is a person sent on a mission to re represent somebody else. That sounds kind of like an ambassador too, doesn't it? Right? And we are all called as ambassadors of Christ. <coughs> Paul was such a person. He was sent by Jesus to plant the church in every city. And the missionaries we support are, are our emissaries as well as God's emissaries. We support missions pretty heavy in this church. Uh, we, we're sending people to take the gospel where it's never been. Uh, Jim and Judy just got done translating the New Testament into the Dome language. And I just read a letter from Ethnos 360 that in another tribe where people have been there longer they just finished the whole bible it took 66 years to get the whole bible into that in the language of that tribe jim and judy were in the dome for 40 years 
and all they have is a solid, a good translation of the New Testament. But they've taught those people. There's three functioning churches there. There's functioning qualified Bible teachers and evangelists and uh, literacy teachers and pastors, elders there. There are functioning churches. Uh, so they did a good work, and that's what we've been supporting. <coughs> they were emissaries. But we are each individually and collectively called to be ambas ambassadors of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. If you don't know that verse, <coughs> write it down, look it up. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says, you are ambassadors for Christ. He sent you to do a job for him. <coughs> when Jesus sent the 11 apostles, he authorized them to teach and to make disciples in all the world. And he specifically commanded them to teach the believers everything that he himself had taught them. So that it was supposed to be a chain reaction that that, that teaching went on to others. And he says to teach them to do all that I've commanded you. So it's not just fun stuff to know and tell. It's not like a you know TV show for little kids on biology or something that, whoa, I didn't know spiders did that. No, it's not that kind of a thing. It's a life-changing truth that we're supposed to learn. It's supposed to have application in our lives, and as we teach others, it should have that same effect on their lives. Timothy had a more specific assignment. It was to remind the people to reteach and to reteach the believers exactly what Paul had already taught them. <coughs> they had already forgotten it. He had some other responsibilities as well. We're going to find out what those are. So what were Timothy's overall instructions? By the way, Titus had the same instructions or very similar. He was sent to different churches at different times, but both of them were sent for the same purposes. So if you'd like, <coughs> if you turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 2 through 20, we find out what Timothy was sent to do because he is sent to Corinth, to do a job, and we want to see what that job includes. <coughs> As I get older, the pages get thinner here. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 2 through 20. Paul now, in, in this book, is writing to Timothy. He says, Unto Timothy, mine own son in the faith. This is how we know that he led Timothy to the Lord. My son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from our God, from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, as I besought thee, I begged you, <coughs> to stay at Ephesus when I went to Macedonia, that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Don't go off and left field someplace. Teach what God says. <coughs> Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in the faith, so do. He says, now at the end of the commandment is a charity. The end of the, excuse me, now the end of the commandment, the result, the end result of the commandment is charity. It means the agape love. That's what the King James translators used for agape. Out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and a faith unfeigned. You're not faking anything. From which some, having swerved, they've turned away from that faith. We talked this morning about that in our early service. <coughs> that churches turn aside to something else and the church dies. God takes them out. He says, from which some having swerved have turned aside into vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, the Old Testament law, 
understanding neither what they say nor where they affirm, but we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, <clears throat> for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for men that defile, defile themselves with mankind, with men stealers, kidnappers, with, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. He's saying that the law was for that purpose. <clears throat> is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God who was committed under my trust, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, made me a servant, <clears throat> who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And that's true of all of us, by the way. None of you have seen God face to face. The reason that the angelic beings who fell did not get offered grace is because they did know God face to face from the moment they were created and they chose to rebel anyway. None of us have seen him. We don't understand the enormity of our sin. We don't understand what a big mess we've made out of everything. We get a glimpse of it now and then, but the fact is we're just a bunch of ignorant savages and he treats us that way. He's reaching out in kindness and love and grace and he's reaching to change our lives and teach us to follow him. <coughs> but he says, I did it ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord, grace means unearned favor, not something I deserve. The grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. We talked about this this morning too. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul recognized that he was the least likely to succeed from God's perspective. <clears throat> Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Christ Jesus might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be only glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before thee on thee, that thou by them mightst war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, and may learn not to, to blaspheme. So this is what Paul is sending them to do, to straighten things out. <coughs> but if I jump ahead to chapter 3, I can see that he lays out what the qualifications of an elder are, of a bishop, a pastor, all the same guy. And it was always plural. Yeah, and he says that he or they were to ordain elders, plural, in every church, singular. We see that over in the book of Titus. So he was to straighten out some of the people that were, had a tendency towards false teaching and corrupt behavior that was springing up in the church. That was all supposed to get straightened out by him. And then he was supposed to be ordaining leadership in these fledgling churches. And he gave him very strict uh, qualifications for leadership. And we'd do well to pay attention to those. You know, if you if you put somebody into leadership in a church and they're not qualified, they're not what God says. And by the way, none of it says having gone to seminary or anything like that. It's talking about character. It's talking about who you're who you're dealing with. I don't care how much education he's got. 
that's not the issue. The issue is how does he walk with Jesus? How does he treat the people around him? How does he love his wife, etc.? How does he take care of his kids? <coughs> so he, he gave assignment for Timothy to ordain leadership. And we go to chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4, 12 through 16. Just turn another page to your right. He says, until I come, excuse me, verse 12, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word. And it says conversation. The word conversation in King James English never means two people talking. There's only two words that are translated conversation. One of them is tropos, meaning your lifestyle, and the other is politumo, meaning your citizenship. It's only used that way a couple of times. So this is talking about his lifestyle in your word in your way of life, in charity. There's that word agape again, the agape love that we see in 1 Corinthians 13. In spirit, in faith, in purity. Until I come, give attendance to reading. He's talking about public reading of God's word. To exhortation, to doctrine. That's teaching. The word doctrine just means teaching. And then he gives a command. He says, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, that God revealed the gift that Timothy was going to have, what he was going to do, with the laying on of hands of the pr of the presbytery. Presbytery is the, the the Greek word presbyteros means older people. That's literally all it means. But it's used in a unique way, meaning the elders of a church. And this particular place is translated presbytery. It just means the elders. So the elders of Timothy's home church knew what God had chosen for Timothy to do and they recognize the prophecy that this is what Timothy's job is going to be and they appointed him that's what it means on the laying on of hands there's nothing special you know you're not electrifying them or something with all these hands on them that's not it at all you're publicly recognizing that God has ordained this guy to do this job that's what it means when we ordain an elder in a church we're publicly recognizing that it's clear that God's hand is on this individual. He teaches faithfully. He serves faithfully. And he, he is, we recognize him as one of the leaders in this church. That's what ordination is. That's all it is. So he goes on to say, uh, now I've lost my place. Where was I? Uh, verse 12 through 16. Here we go. He says, meditate upon these things. Verse 15. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. He's giving Timothy his marching orders. He's telling him how to live. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Now we want to remember that the word for save has three tenses. I was saved the day I trusted Jesus as my Savior. I was saved from the eternal penalty of sin. I'm not. I'm no longer having to be anxious that God's going to kick me out, that he's going to judge me. I belong to him now. But on a daily basis, if I learn to walk with him, learn to study his word, maintain this truth in my life, then he, he delivers me from the power of sin in my life on a daily basis. That's the present tense form of salvation and the future tense is eventually I'll be relieved from this burden of sin in my life entirely forever when I get my new body I'm going to be standing before Jesus without any more flaws right now I see more flaws than anything else I have trouble finding that new nature sometimes it's there but 
I'm just a rotten old sinner that Jesus saved and is using to do a job. That's all. By the way, as we pointed out before, evangelism is nothing more or less than one beggar telling another beggar where to find free food. If you've told somebody about Jesus, you accomplished that. They saw you with a pizza in your mouth and you told them where they got it, where you got it. They saw a change in your life. They said, I've been noticing you're really you're you're handling this situation really well. What's what's different? So well, I trust that Jesus is my savior and he's been changing my life and yeah, I am handling things better today than I used to. That's evangelism. You're telling them where you got that pizza or sandwich or whatever it is you've got. You're one beggar telling another beggar where to find free food. You can do that. Every single person here can do that. So let's think about what is what is instructions invo involved. <coughs> I decided the easiest way to do is to break it down into an outline. <coughs> One of the things he said, verse 12, he says, let no man despise your youth. His, his, whatever other people thought of his youth was no longer a valid concern. He says, yeah, I know you're young. Don't worry about it. There's other people that are going to reject what you're saying because you're, wow, what do you know? You're just a kid. Don't worry about those people. Says you do with the job you were sent to do. He says, let no man despise your youth. You be an example to the believers. You be the example you're supposed to be, and eventually people will recognize that, well, he may be young, but he's doing the job right. Let no man despise your youth. So if we list it out, he says, no man despise your youth. Says, be an example for the believers, and he gives six ways to be an example. He says, in word, in your lifestyle, in charity or agape love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Those six ways you're to be an example for the believers. And he says, until I come, give attendance to, and he lists three things, reading. He's talking about the public reading of Scripture. Not everybody's literate. Not everybody's comfortable with reading out loud from the Scripture or even reading it to themselves. Uh, I, it was a shock to me the first time I, read, I met an adult that didn't know how to read. I thought, that's impossible. Well, that's because I learned at such an early age, I thought everybody knew how to read. And when I first ran into an adult that didn't know how to read, I did not believe them. Same thing as I remember the first time I read into a, ran into a lady that didn't know how to swim. I thought, all adults know how to swim. Uh, I did not believe her. I said, yes, you can. She says, no, honey, I can't swim. Uh, that's impossible. Well, no, it's not just it's not just possible. It's getting more and more common. Illiteracy is gaining again. There's less and less people in our society that are functionally able to read, uh, to, to get the meaning from something as they read. They struggle with it. I used to run into that at work, and I, I, I didn't know what to do. You know, I got a guy that's old enough to be, almost old enough to be my dad, and he can, he can barely read. He can't read an instruction manual or something. I didn't know what to do with it. Well, many people in their society didn't know how to read because not everybody could afford to go out to school. So he, he was to publicly read the scriptures. Just give attention to that. Exhortation, that means encouraging. You're encouraging people to take seriously what they're learning from God's word and doctrine is teaching. It's teaching, what does this mean? What do I do with this? How does this apply to my life? <clears throat> he says, don't neglect the gift that's in you. Now in Timothy's case, it was given through prophecy. He was ordained by the elders of his home church. We already talked about that. 
in every single believer's case, there's gifts that God has given to you by which you're supposed to be blessing the people around you. Some people have very prominent gifts. Some have gifts that you don't really notice. Some are really good at encouraging, and they can draw alongside somebody who's struggling and, and bolster their spirit and encourage them. I've known people like that. Rex is pretty good at encouragement. I've noticed he draws alongside people. Uh, I knew other people like that. Some have gifts of mercy. They'll see a need in somebody else's life, and they'll go meet that need before anybody else even realizes there's a need there. Ann's real good at that kind of stuff. You glance around, whoop, what's she doing now? Well, helping somebody. That's, that's how these gifts work. You recognize what God's gifted you to do, and you look for opportunities, and you do it. That doesn't mean you're limited to just those things, but we're to, we're to not neglect the gift that's in you. And then he says to meditate upon these things. Now, meditation in the Scripture has nothing to do with this twist your legs up into a funny position and hold your fingers funny and then, you know, chant om or, or you know, contemplate your navel or whatever it is they're telling you to do. That's not meditation, scripturally. Meditation in the scripture means taking a particular concept, specifically, usually, a particular concept from God's word and dwelling on it, thinking on it, ruminating on it, chewing your cud, so to speak, to consider how does this thing work? How does this apply to my life? What God's, what's God going to teach me from this scripture? That's scriptural meditation, is allowing God's word time to soak in to your soul and change your heart. That's how scriptural meditation works. It has nothing to do with the, the world's idea of meditation. But in this way, he says, if you'll give yourself completely to this assignment, he says, give yourself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all says, in this way, the spiritual blessing and flourishing in your life will be obvious to all those around you. And by the way, that gives a good foundation for evangelism. There was a guy at work one time. I, we talked quite a bit, and finally I asked him one day, I said, so are you interested in spiritual things? He says, nope, but I'm real interested in you. I thought, what do you mean? Well, he'd been watching me, and he wanted to know what made me tick. I got to share the gospel with him extensively over a period of months. And I, at one point I thought he was going to reject it. I said, so is this something you want for yourself? He says, no. I thought, why? And before I could say anything, he says, I'd lose all my friends. He says, of course, actually, I've only got one friend, and he's an idiot. <laughs> so you're going to miss out on what God's got for you for one guy that you said to yourself is an idiot? Well, about a month later, he says that he and his wife were kind of having an argument. I said, why? He says, because I want my kids to go to a Christian school, and she doesn't want them to. I thought, whoa, so what happened here? Um, last time we talked, you weren't a Christian. And I said, why? He says, well, she doesn't want them to go there because she says they'll come home asking questions that she can't answer. I said, what'd you tell her? He says, well, I told her, if you can't answer them, I will. And if I can't answer them, I'll ask Chet. Uh, okay, something happened here. You know, I'd shared with him. I did not see any change. And then all of a sudden, boom, he's over on the other side saying, I want my kids raised into this. Something changed. God's word did that. I can't take any credit for it. But because of what he saw, I don't even know what he saw, but whatever he saw, he was interested in that. And that's what he says here. If you'll press on with this, you'll give yourself to this, then your profiting will be obvious to those around you. 
And he finally says, pay close attention to yourself. He says, give heed unto thyself. Take heed. It means pay attention to what you're doing, where you're going, how you're walking. Pay close attention to yourself and to what you're teaching. And continue with the assignment and this lifestyle. And it says the result will be salvation for your hearers as well for, as for yourselves. And we talked about the three tenses of salvation. For you, it's going to give you deliverance from sin in your life today because you're walking with Jesus tight enough that you don't get off, off in the left field. For them, some of them are not believers. It's going to mean initial salvation for them. They're going to be relieved from the, the eternal punishment of sin. For some of them, they're believers, and it's going to relieve them of the current power of sin in their life. And for all of them, eventually, they're looking forward to the eventual deliverance from sin as a reality. It won't be there anymore. You'll be with Jesus. So, can we apply this assignment to ourselves? That's the question. I'm not Timothy. I've never talked to Paul, except for as he speaks through his word, through, through God's word. But God says we're ambassadors for Christ. We read that in 2 Corinthians 5.20. You are already an emissary of God. He's already sent you. He's already given you that assignment. And all of these instructions that we just laid out here would apply. As far as I can tell, every one of them. And in fact, I underscore that until I come, who are we waiting to come? Not Paul. Jesus is coming back. And, you know, we talked about there was a book written oh, back in the 70s, What to Do While Waiting for the Messiah to Come, or something like that was the title. It was a ridiculous book. It was all about, you know, home herbal remedies and, and raising a garden and stuff like that. I think, what's this got to do with the Messiah? None of it did. Not one bit of it. It was, it was a joke really. I know they didn't intend it as a joke, but it's like some mystic thing. But Jesus is coming. It's, that is a reality. And we want to be doing what he wants us to do in the meanwhile. Well, this marching orders that Timothy was given actually applies to us pretty good. <coughs> Jesus is going to return. There's, there's people that say he's not. There's even uh, various cults that say, oh, yeah, he already came. Back in 1857, Really? Oh, no, no, no. It was uh, 1942. No, it was in 1975. And you think, what are you talking about? And Lee sums it up. He says, well, that's true that I missed the boat because Jesus said he's coming, and when he comes, I'm going with him. So, no, he, he hasn't come. He's still coming. And, yes, when he comes, we want to be doing what he sent us to do. We can't keep putting off the idea that we're servants of God or thinking, well, you know, I'll, I'll try to do some growing first. I'll study the Bible more and I'll, I'll try to straighten out a little bit and then see what God wants me to do. No. Volunteer now. Look, Go back and read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When, when Isaiah had a vision and saw Jesus face to face in the temple, high and lifted up and these angelic beings worshiping him, calling him holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is full of his glory. When God said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah jumps up waving his hand saying, here my Lord, send me. He didn't ask what the job was yet. He didn't ask what it was he was volunteering for. He just volunteered and says, I want to be on your team. Whatever it is you're doing, I want to do it. That's the way we're to volunteer. That's the way we're to offer ourselves for God's service. Volunteer now and let him do the cleaning up. Let him do the growing. 
we got a guy in this church that three years ago wasn't in the Word. All of a sudden, he started studying hard, and you've heard him preach three times. He did a pretty stinking good job, too. You see, God's Word does that. He didn't say, well, I'll grow first, and I'll straighten out first, and then maybe God will use me. No, you, you volunteer now. Let him do the cleaning up. Let him do the growing. You get on it. You do the job he sent you to do. So we choose obedience first. Now, Timothy and Titus were given very specific ministries. I'd like to point out something about that. A lot of commentators, please remember that commentators are just commentators. They're, they're nothing special. They're just a guy with an opinion, just like me. But they say that Timothy, well, see, Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. No, he wasn't. He was sent there for a little while to straighten things out, but he was told to get that job done and get back to Paul because Paul was going to send him to another church. The Ephesian pastors, plural, elders, Paul talked to in Acts chapter 20, verses uh, 28 through 31, and he told them to stay put and to feed that flock. Timothy had an itinerant ministry. He was sent from church to church to church doing a special job. So was Titus. Those pastors, elders, like me, are sent to a church, and they are supposed to stay put, and their only job is to tend that flock, feed that flock. Does that mean they'll never get to go someplace else? No, they might. If God says, okay, I got somebody else doing that job now, I want you to go over here. That's fine. But it's not something where they just jump around or looking for better pay someplace. If you're in it for the pay, you shouldn't be there at all. But each believer has, has been called as an ambassador. Timothy and Titus were not pastors. They had a ministry that had them going from church to church. The elders were told to stay put and to feed that flock. You can read it. It's Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. Every single one of us is called to be an ambassador. Every single one of us is appointed a priest in the body of Christ. And as such, we're called to be, bring spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 13. We're to bring spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving as well as prayers for other believers. First Timothy chapter oh, let's see two, I think. Yeah. I exhort therefore first Timothy two one. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. That's our job. Some of you are real good at it. Some aren't. I'm not real good at it. Chuck and Carolyn are good at it. I want to learn that kind of faithfulness in prayer. But every one of us is given that assignment. We're given assignments. Some of us, all of us, are given assignments that are specific to us alone. There's people that you know that I don't know and I never will. There's people that you have an influence in their life that I'll never even know they exist. There's your fishing buddy or whoever you buy gasoline from or whomever, family members, extended family members, that you have an, an avenue into their life that I don't. And maybe nobody else does. You may be the only functioning Christian they know. So how you live, especially around them, but how you live and how you speak and how you pray for them may be their only hope. Somebody was telling me this morning about close friends of hers that they don't know the Lord, and they think they do. And, and it's, it's clear they don't. In fact, they said that they're saved because their dad was a pastor. Sorry, that doesn't connect. No, it, Christianity is not inherited. Your position in Christ is not inherited from your parents. 
I have been told that insanity is hereditary. You, you get it from your kids. That's not true. Children are a blessing from the Lord. <clears throat> it's just a joke. So every single one of us has assignments that are specific to him or her alone. There's people that you know that are your target, that God has sent you to them and nobody else. Each of us is called to a life of intentional discipleship, learning to follow Christ and to apply his written word to our lives. Every single one of us, no exceptions. Now, there are false teachers. Some teachers rebel against sound teaching. They teach others to reject God's word. When you run into somebody that's telling you, well, that's not really true. Here, here's what's, and they got something else for you. Time to walk away. And there are people like that, more of them today maybe than ever before. And you just have to be careful. That's why the Internet preachers can be wonderful or they can be terrible. And the problem is there's no accountability. I can't go to the guy afterwards and say, hey, you said this. Where did you get that? Does that come from the Bible or are you just making it up? I can't do that. I don't even know where they live. The only reason I know their name is because they say so on the, you know, on the Internet or on the radio or whatever. And I've heard some people say some stuff that I look back and I thought, okay, that's flat not true. I wonder why he believes that. But I can't go ask him. There's zero accountability. If you're listening to Alex on Wednesday night and you ask him afterwards, Alex, where did you get this? He can go right back and say, well, remember we were reading right here and we went over to this cross-reference. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I got it, I got it, thanks. That's called accountability. These guys on the, on the web and on the radio, there is zero accountability, television, whatever. You can't go to them and argue with them or talk to them and say, I don't get this. Where, where did you come up with that idea? You can't do that. <coughs> So we need to be aware. There's people that are teaching that Jesus isn't going to return. He is going to return. If you want to read about what's going to happen when he returns, and in we, we read in the book of Acts that, that while the disciples were still looking up at the clouds where Jesus just disappeared, these two angels showed up beside him and said, what are you guys doing? Why are you just standing here looking up in the sky? That same Jesus who you saw take off, he's going to come back in the same manner, visibly, visibly, physically right here on the Mount of Olives says you guys need to get to work he gave you a job to do so they went back to Jerusalem and got on the job next thing you know you know they're preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 2 but right before that they were told how and when Jesus is coming back way future and right there so Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 says that when he shows up there on the Mount of Olives says they meaning the Jews in Jerusalem says they shall see me whom they have pierced. And if you read Zechariah chapter 12, first 10 verses, it's always the Lord, all caps. It's God, the Old Testament God, the Israelis God, all the way through. He says, they shall see, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. They're going to recognize finally that Jesus was God in the flesh, that that's who they crucified. He says, they'll mourn for me as one mourns for his only begotten son and be in bitterness for him as one is in bitterness for his firstborn. But in Zechariah 14, it gives the physical what's going to happen. Zechariah 14 says that when he steps down on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is going to split wide open. There'll be a ravine running east-west. says half of the mountain will flee to the north, half will flee to the south. And the people that are in Jerusalem are under such pressure from the siege that's on Jerusalem at that time, they're going to run into that ravine for safety. Now, ordinarily, if the ground splits open, everybody runs away. I do. I would. 
they're in such pressure that they're going to run into that ravine, recognizing that as their only place of safety. See, he is coming back physically, visibly, to the Mount of Olives. Got to read it. The irony is that some of the very people that are continually today teaching that he's not really coming back, not physically, not visibly. It's a spiritual thing. He'll just permeate the world with his presence. It's a mystic thing, you see. Some of those people are going to be standing there looking when he returns, and it'll be too late for them to change their mind. And Paul warned the rebels in Corinth that he was coming back. He says he was coming to town to confront them personally. It's a good picture for us because we know Jesus is coming back. We have the same warning. Jesus will return and judgment comes back with him. Now, my sins have been judged at the cross. For the majority of people here, I would say that's true for you too. If I can't see anybody's heart, but everybody that I know here, I'm pretty sure they've already placed their trust in Jesus as their Savior. Their sins have already been judged at the cross. So the only thing left is the judgment of my works. Is the, what I accomplished as a believer, did it have eternal value or not? And we read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We already talked about that some time ago. But there are false teachers in the world. And God's word isn't just rhetoric. It's not just wishful thinking. And the false prophets of Jeremiah's days, they had lots of good words to say. They said that Nebuchadnezzar is going to back off in less than two years. He's going to go back to his hometown, and Jerusalem's going to be safe. It was a lie. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 8, God says, yeah, you dreamed a dream all right, but you caused that dream yourself. You wanted it to happen so bad you had the dream, and now you're telling everybody about it. That's what God says. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 8. They caused the dream themselves. So what's the difference? Well, God's word is not human origin. His word accomplishes what he sent it to do. In Romans 1, 16, one of the things he says I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's the, that's the only thing that God lists as his ability to save people. Most of us here can testi testify as to how God's power has transformed our lives. And we want to demonstrate the reality of that transformation day by day so that other people can see it. And we read... In the scripture, the, the reality of how the, the disciples' lives were transformed. So what happened in Acts chapter 2? You know, they had been a bunch of men that were terrified that they were going to be executed next. They were hiding in an upper room. The Holy Spirit came, and all of a sudden they were transformed. They were fearlessly preaching the gospel to thousands of people who they knew might turn on them and kill them. And instead, there was, I think, 3,000 people saved that day. And just a few days later, there was about 5,000 more. And they got jumped on by the, by the high priesthood and the temple guards and beat up. And God snuck them out of prison right under the noses of the guards. They never even saw them leave. And they were still standing there in front of the door thinking they still had their prisoners when the officials showed up to get Peter and whoever it was out of the prison. Now they're gone. I'd, I'd hate to have been in those guards' shoes having to explain, I was standing right here, nobody left, honest. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, they're out there in the temple preaching right now. How do you explain that? I, I really hate to have had to try to explain that. We're not told what happened to those guys. Paul says the kingdom of God is not just about words, but about power. Specifically, 
the power to make things happen. When I first read this, see there's several words, maybe four words in the New Testament that are translated power. Kratos means like a dominion. And dunamis means the Armstrong power of God, the power to make things happen. Exousia is authority, the authority to speak, and it's done. And I thought that's what this was about. It's not, it's dunamis. It means the physical ability to make things happen by sheer authority. It's the Greek word dunamis. Where we get the word dynamo and dynamic, and yes, dynamite, but that one's destructive power. Uh, it's just a brand name, but the, the dunama uh, is the root for the English words that have to that start with dynamic and dynamo and that kind of thing. And Paul knew that if necessary, God was going to work through him to bring judgment on those rebels at Corinth. We're not told if that happened. We d he just warned them. If I have to come there in judgment, I will. Well, we know that Jesus is coming back. We have God's written word. We know that Jesus is the living word, and he is coming, and we want to take this seriously. We want to read these things and know that his word is going to be fulfilled to the letter, and all I can do is either deliberately align myself with what God says or not. If I choose not to, then I'm not on his team. I'm not functioning. If I choose to align myself with what God says, then I'm not only on his team, but I'm functioning as one on his team. And God asked the Corinthian believers how they wanted him to arrive. Do you want me to arrive in gentleness and love or in judgment and heavy consequences? And we can ask ourselves the same question. When we see Jesus, are we going to be grateful and glad and blessed to finally see him face to face? Or are we going to be dismayed and sorry to have wasted our lives in such foolish pursuits? I bet you there isn't a person here that can't think of something they do every day that's a total waste of time. I sure can. I don't know how many YouTube videos I've watched of somebody blowing up a beaver dam or with tannerite or, or you know, showing how to cut down a huge tree that was rotten to the core. And, you know, you know, and there's good things there. I learned how to repair a washing machine and fix my wife's washing machine. That's good. That was not a waste of time. But a lot of it is strictly a waste of time. It's entertainment. All of us can think of things that we do that we're wasting time. The choice is ours. We make our choices every day. We choose moment by moment how to respond to Jesus, the living word of God, by the way we respond to what we know of his written word. We need to reread these passages and meditate on what they mean in our individual lives. I pray that God will grant that we'll make good choices as a result. He says good choices in this area will revolt result not only in our own deliverance on a day-by-day -day basis, but also in the lives of those around us. There's going to be people around us that either will or will not see the reality of Jesus in our lives because of the choices we make. And that's what he was telling Timothy. So we need to consider how our lives are going to affect those in our sphere of influence. Will it turn hearts to Jesus or turn them away? That's the question for us to ask. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we'd ask that you'd awaken our hearts to follow you faithfully and to act as your emissaries, to be in, in reality, your ambassadors. Teach us to live our lives wives, wisely and, and so to receive your blessing. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.